Acts 18, but our reading this morning is actually verses 18 through 23. So would you please stand if you're able and, and read the scriptures with me? Let's read together. Let's read aloud. Acts 18, verses 18 through 23. Verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his, care, his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Shall we pray? Our Father, this morning we thank you, and we bless you, and we praise you for your goodness and your mercy, for your love and grace that, Lord, we are so blessed and yet undeserving to have, but, but we rejoice in it, Lord, and we thank you for the privilege of coming now to your word, to read, to understand, and that we ask, Lord, that you would bless us and pour out your Holy Spirit upon us for that understanding, that we may come to a greater knowledge of your truth. May your wisdom speak to our hearts and to our minds. Prepare us, O God, for the days ahead, we ask these things, Lord God, before we go on, Lord, we also want to pray for those who are, who are sick in our congregation, Lord. And we ask, Lord, for those that uh, may be in hospital today as well, that your hand of blessing would be upon each and every one of them. Uh, we, we pray for Susie and we pray for uh, Ben Gomez's mother-in-law. We pray for those that are, are suffering, Lord, uh, great pain today. May you bring comfort to their bodies and to their lives today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. We have a couple of families in our congregation who answered the calling of the Lord to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ in Mexico. Uh, actually, two families, uh, both named Garcias, y'all. Many of you know them. Gilbert's family as well as Fred and Barbara's family. Gilbert in Juarez and, and Fred and Barbara in uh, Veracruz. But part of their plan to effectively reach the people where they would be serving was to apply for <clears throat> Mexican citizenship, which they were able to do. And this was certainly a demonstration of their sincerity to reach out to the Mexican people. Now, for some, that would sound strange or even extreme. We know that there are many uh, uh, missionaries that go into foreign countries and, you know, hold on to their American citizenship or U.S. citizenship. But uh, while it might sound strange or extreme, it was that kind of thinking 
that encouraged and motivated Paul on the mission field. Paul, as a matter of fact, would explain his philosophy of outreach to the Corinthian church. When we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, he interjects, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. You see, Paul assumed every shape and form consistent with innocence and complete integrity, giving up his own will, giving up his own way, his own ease, his own pleasure, his own profit, that he might save the souls of all, both Jews and Gentiles. Consider the goal that he had in view and the manner in which he pursued that goal. It was not to get money. It wasn't to have influence or honor. It was to save souls. It was not to get ease, but to increase his labors for the sake of the gospel. It was not to save his life, but rather that it should be a sacrifice for the good of immortal souls. And may I say to you that when Paul says, I became all things, or I have become all things to all men, he's not saying that he would become like the world. This is why I say that he was consistent with innocence and integrity. He didn't change his way. He didn't go into some bar and sit down there and start drinking with everybody so everybody feel comfortable and then hit him with the gospel. He had his desire to bring people to Christ, but he had his connections in the sense of his Jewishness as well as his understanding of the cultures, both Greek and Roman, to be able to talk to people and not to compromise his convictions. And as we shall be encouraged shortly, we should remain open ourselves to the Lord's leading toward both unbelievers and those believers who are weak in the faith. But first, there is a matter for us today of dealing with a few verses that we have yet to look at, especially since they tell of the results of Paul's ministry to the Jews in Corinth. Now remember, at this point in time, Paul is still in Corinth, and the apostle has been encouraged by the Lord that no attack would come upon him in Corinth, first of all, because the Lord was with him, and because the Lord had already foreseen a number of people who would be converted by Paul's ministry there. So, as a point of remembrance, look at verses 9 through 11. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. Why does God tell Paul this? Evidently because Paul was fearful. And the Lord was encouraging him not to be fearful. He says to him, speak, because he was holding back. And then he says, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year 
and six months teaching the word of God among them. And God kept his promise, as we shall see in just a moment. And even in the midst of, 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 uh, of this, this hostility towards Paul, because of all the things that Paul had experienced already in the ministry, that brought him to that point of fear, that brought him to that point of holding back, God encourages him. And this brings us to the resulting actions of the members of the synagogue there in Corinth. And we read in verses 12 through 17, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Now you think, God has made this promise. No one's going to harm you, Paul. And all of a sudden they take Paul and bring him before the Roman proconsul. And they say to him, This fellow, speaking of Paul, persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Now why is this significant in this story? Well, just the very mention of Gallio, who was a real person, connected to another real person who was very popular or famous, at least, in, 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 in Roman history, a person named Seneca, are all giving us now a, a good understanding that this is historical, that this actually took place. And, and so it, it, uh, it strengthens the very fact that the Word of God is true. But Gallio was the brother of Seneca, who was the famed Roman philosopher and the tutor of Nero. Of his brother, Seneca said, and this is speaking of his brother Gallio, Seneca said that he is, and I quote, an intelligent person who hated flattery and was blessed with an unaffectedly pleasant personality. Now, having that understanding here, the, the Jews, hoping to get Gallio to side with them, brought Paul into the judgment seat, or what they really call the Bema seat, before Gallio, and presented their case against Paul. And they said of Paul, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But Gallio doesn't see things their way. You see, at this point, they saw Christianity as just another sect of Judaism. And I say they as being the Romans. They saw Christianity as just another sect of Judaism, and Judaism was officially tolerated by the Romans at this point. So he basically tells them that this is not a matter of Roman law, but of their own Jewish law, and therefore they needed to deal with it themselves, not Rome. Rome's not going to mess with this. Thing. And Gallio closes court and he drives them out. He says, get out of here. You're wasting my time. Now, what's important about this part of the story here is that uh, this was an important decree by this person named Gallio because what he said, as the proconsul of Achaia, what he said became the law in the land. 
If he said something, it would become law. In other words, he was setting a precedent for others to follow. You're going to see the hand of God in this, you see. Because as one commentator put it, he said, If Gallio had accepted the Jewish charge and found Paul guilty of the alleged offense, provincial governors everywhere would have had a precedent, and Paul's ministry would have been severely restricted. As it was, Gallio's refusal to act in the matter was tantamount to the recognition of Christianity as a religio licita, which is, Rome, uh, which is uh, Latin for a lawful religion. So again, you see the hand of God in this, because here they bring Paul uh, uh, to say that he, you know, he's causing a problem by having men worship God contrary to the law, but the Romans say, it's not our law, and, and we recognize you all. You're just having a, an internal squabble, so you settle it yourselves. We're not going to mess with it. By setting that particular precedent, then Christianity is able to go forth as a, Jew, as a, a, a Jewish sect, as it were, and have its, uh, its message preached. Not restricted, you see, God's hand in this. So in essence, Gallio refused to get caught up in this internal squabble or quarrel with Judaism. And his ruling said this, being that the squabble was over words, in other words, semantics, no crime was committed. Now the one who suffered for all of this was not Paul, but the man named Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue. I mean, Paul is himself ready to speak. You know, Paul was, was, was one who, uh, who knew that he was given an opportunity by the Lord to stand and to give his testimony and to give witness of Christ. And he's ready to speak before Gallio and the proconsul. But he's, he's not given the opportunity. Paul never even opened his mouth. We again see God's hand on Paul when God promised that no harm was going to come to Paul. He keeps him quiet, at least here before Gallio. Gallio sets his, his precedent, kicks everybody out. And who gets the punishment? You see, more than likely beaten by anti-Semitic Gentiles than by his own people and that, for taking up the court's valuable time, Sosthenes' mischief of trying Paul boomeranged. It came back and hit him. And he felt the brunt of the crowd's venting. You guys are wasting our time. They didn't like the, they didn't like the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism has been around a long time, folks. They didn't like the Jewish people. So anytime they give them any problems of, of, of whatever, you know, they, they take law into their own hands. Gallio turns himself away. He says, I'm not going to mess with this. And Sosthenes gets it. Now it's interesting that uh, last time we were talking about the ruler of the synagogue there in Corinth. His name, is, his name was Crispus. And Crispus became a Christian. So evidently Sosthenes took over as the ruler of the synagogue for this person named Crispus. And, and Sosthenes... Evidently, as the ruler of the synagogue, had something to do with bringing Paul before the Romans. Now the Greeks or the, the Gentiles come upon Sosthenes and, and express their own opinion. They beat him. And you would think, what does, that do, what does that do to this person named Sosthenes? And why am I still talking about Sosthenes? Well, it's really important for us to see something about him. 
Because his experience in all of this had somewhat of a wholesome and a healthy effect on his life. As a matter of fact, I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Because as Paul now, later on, is writing back to the church in Corinth, this church that he had been with for a year and a half, he's writing to them and he says to them, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes, not the ruler of the synagogue anymore, Sosthenes, our brother. Now I think it is significant for Paul to mention Sosthenes here, somewhat as a co-author even of of Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian letter here, the first Corinthian letter. While there may have been a number of people named Sosthenes, maybe not that many, that Sosthenes was not one of those great popular names. I think it's important to to note that Paul would use his name because it was somebody that they knew and would remember. And so, more than likely, that Sosthenes who was beaten in some way would have been loved into the kingdom of God and into the knowledge of Christ, probably by Paul. And now, Paul calls him our brother. How truly marvelous is the grace of God. How truly marvelous is God's grace that even those who have been antagonistic towards and belligerent towards Christianity can still have an opportunity to come to Christ through the love of Christ. You see how how important it is for us to show the love of Christ? And maybe it was a good thing that God kept Paul's mouth closed. Because a lot of times it isn't our words. It's just our actions. It's the way that we present ourselves as Christians. That people are going to see a difference. It's not that they're going to see that we are more prosperous or we are are more... uh, uh, position-oriented or any of that. They need to see the love of Jesus Christ in us. It isn't what they see on us, it's what they see in us. And somehow we see this person turned around for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we arrive now at the end of Paul's second missionary journey, and, and that brings us to the passage we read earlier. Let me read it again to you. So Paul still remained a good while there in Corinth. And then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. Syria, of course, being Paul's home base. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sancreia, for he had taken a vow. And that's really speaking of Paul. There are those who might think that uh, it's talking about Aquila, but uh, uh, even grammatically there's no way to connect that to, to him. It's, it's really speaking about Paul here. That Paul had cut his hair off at Sancreia, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, speaking of Priscilla and Aquila. 
But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Isn't it interesting as we're reading this, uh, that certain things that have happened to Paul in the past, that we wouldn't think would happen again, are happening again. Paul had wanted to go into Ephesus at one time, and the Lord told him, Oh, no, no, I want you to go to Europe, not to Asia. But now he's going to Ephesus, where he wanted to go in the first place. And then we're told that he went into a synagogue. When last week we saw how he came out of that Corinthian synagogue, and he said, I brushed myself off with you guys. <laughs> you got the blood on your own hands. I'm going to the Gentiles. These are no contradictions. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let's read on. When they asked him to stay a longer, a longer time with them, those in the synagogue, what does that tell you? They received what Paul was saying. And they, they wanted him to stay, but he did not consent, it says. But took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening the disciples. Verse 23 actually is the beginning of his third missionary journey. We'll get to that later. But Paul may have stayed in Corinth uh, maybe a few months past those 18 months mentioned in verse 11, but whether it was the 18 months completely or whatever, after this time he sailed for Syria in the final part of his second missionary journey, accompanied, of course, by these two people that he met that brought him into their home and, and worked with him as a tent maker, Priscilla and Aquila, who traveled with him now as far as Ephesus and then stayed behind. They stayed behind to sow the seeds of the gospel that Paul would later come and water and harvest on his return visit there. It is in the uh, 18th verse that we see Paul demonstrate the philosophy of outreach that we heard about earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now we begin to see this demonstration of that philosophy of becoming all things to all men. Because he had his, his hair cut in Sincrea as part of a modified Nazarite vow. Now I say modified because if you look at the, the, the Nazarite vow in, in its fullness for the Jew, uh, the vow was to be taken in Jerusalem, the vow was to you know, be concluded at the temple and all. But here uh, it, it's modified by Paul. He, he doesn't do it strictly, but he does take the vow. And the vow that he takes, if it is a Nazarite vow, was a vow that expressed total dedication to God and total dedication to God's will. Now, if you want to read about the Nazarite vow, you can turn to Numbers chapter 6 and read verses 1 through 27, and that'll give you a good picture of, of the, the Nazarite vow. There are others in the scripture, especially one named Samson. And, of course, when you think about the hair, you would realize that Samson had taken the Nazarite vow for life. But the English word Nazarite, not to be confused with Nazarene, the word Nazarite transliterates the Hebrew word Natsir, which means to set apart. A person made a voluntary vow to God to express their special desire to draw close to God and to set themselves apart from the comforts and the pleasures of this world. And during the time of that vow, 
during the time of their vows, they observed the following prohibitions. Now, listen to what those are. First of all, they were forbidden to eat or drink anything associated with a grapevine. Therefore, they weren't to drink uh, uh, wine. Uh, they could not uh, go near a dead body, not even if, if a close relative had died. They would stay away from, from dead bodies. And then they were to let their hair grow throughout the period of the vow. So at the end of the period of time that they set forth for the vow, no less than 30 days, but could be a lot longer, their hair was cut and the clippings were burned along with an offering at the temple in Jerusalem. So that had become how they had dealt with the vow and how they did the vow. Now, the reason for Paul's vow is not explained to us. We don't know why he took this vow, but Luke does mention it, so we have to then consider why that is. It is important to mention that he was not above using a Jewish means to reach the Jewish people. He said, I will become all things to all men. He was willing to become all things to all men if only he might win some to Christ. So consider the heart of the Apostle Paul for his people, the Jews. Paul, in, in the book of Romans, writes three chapters, 9 through 11, all about his desire for his people to come to Christ and the knowledge of their Messiah. Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. If bringing them to Christ, if, if, if my being considered a curse before Christ would bring my brethren to Christ, I would do that. This is what he's saying. That's how much he loved his people and wanted them to know Jesus. In Romans chapter 10 verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God, uh, to God for Israel is that they might be saved. It's my prayer. It's my desire. His vow could have been intended to attract some of the synagogue Jews. It could have been a demonstrative way of showing the Lord how greatly He desired to be used in the Jewish community in Corinth. It might have just been a, a voluntary discipline uh, that He imposed on Himself to deepen His own spiritual consecration, having been, and think about this, having been in that wicked city called Corinth. He took that vow to consecrate Himself, to set Himself apart, to set Himself away from the ugliness of that of that city. There could be a number of reasons why. But if you come to today, you'll, you'll have some people who wonder why Paul took a vow at all. Because some people have had a hard time with this because they see Paul under the law here. Paul's coming back to the law. Paul's putting himself under the law. What happened, Paul? You were the one who were telling us, you were telling us that we are now under grace, we're no longer under the law. So what are you doing putting yourself under the law again? So they pointed to the fact that he preached that we as believers are not under the law but under grace. And so he shouldn't have made that vow. I mean, people today are saying this. <laughs> but what they're doing is making a little law for Paul. Paul, you shouldn't have done that. 
Here's a little law for you, Paul. In essence, what they're saying is that Paul is to do things their way. Do it our way. Paul, you really messed up here. But if we understand grace properly, if we understand grace properly, now what is grace? God's undeserved favor. If we understand grace properly, if a person wants to make a vow, he can make it. And if you don't want to make a vow, you don't have to. You understand? You don't have to make a vow. In fact, uh, you know, Paul didn't force anyone else to make a vow. Nowhere do we see that Paul said, Okay, now that I'm doing vows, you've got to do vows too. Paul never forced anyone to make a vow. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, Paul emphatically states that, that no one has, has to do that. But I have to say that there are those super saints today. Super saint. Who like to form little cliques and make laws for Christians. And if believers don't follow these laws, they, they just can't be Christians. You have to dress a certain way. You have to read, you know, certain things. You have to do or not do certain things. Oh, if you do this, oh, you're in trouble. See, it's like coming down to the, to the season in which we're in. And, and you know, uh, there's some people who say, man, you know, you have a Christmas tree in your church. Man, you're worshiping idols. I have yet to see anybody bow down to that tree. Besides, it's not even real. It's just a symbol. I hope we're taking every opportunity to tell people about Jesus during this season because it's a good time to do it. Use everything we can to tell people about the Lord, why Jesus came to this earth. Nothing wrong with that. May I tell you that our relationship to Jesus Christ is to be, a, to be truly a love affair? We're to be in love with Christ because He loves us, because He loved us first. And if we love Him, of course we won't do anything to break our fellowship with Him. Whatever it is that we've seen and read in, in, in God's Word, I mean, we, you know, we're not wanting to do those things. But don't insist that I have to go through your little wicked gate. Don't insist that you have to go through this little path just like everybody that's dressed like you and smells like you. I am to follow Christ. You are to follow Christ. You follow Christ. And you read His Word, and you study His Word, and you get to know Him through His Word. And there will be no question. If one wishes to eat meat, then there's freedom to eat meat. Praise the Lord for that. If one wishes to eat only vegetables, hey, then there is freedom for that too. If one wishes to observe a certain day, there's, there's freedom to observe it. We have brothers that are Messianic Jews, and 
And they meet on Saturdays and they have their, their church services and they worship Jesus and they sing the songs. They may wear the kippah or the yarmulke. They may have the prayer shawl. They may, you know, go the, have the, the, you know, the, the scrolls. But if they preach Christ, praise the Lord. Here's the problem. If they tell you, you've got to wear the hat, you've got to wear the shawl, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, there's the problem. If they want to do that, that's fine. Praise the Lord. But the key is what Paul tells the Corinthians in his first letter when he writes to them in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, and he says to them, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you can think about the things that you do, and, and if, if those things will bring glory to God, praise God. It's all right. Whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Become all things to all men, but do all to the glory of God. Not to self, not to man, not to flesh, to the glory of God. Now I want you to look at verses 19 through 21 of Acts chapter 18, our text here. Notice what it says. And he came to Ephesus and left Priscilla and Aquila there, but, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. Isn't that wonderful that Paul says, you know, God willing, I'll return to you? I've actually heard preachers tell, tell people that, you know, we are not to say, you know, well, if God, you know, if it's God's will... Uh, you know, some, supposedly we, we're kind of weak if we say that. If we say that, you know, if it's God's will, we'll do this or that. I'm, I'm telling you this. Jesus said it. Paul said it. I think it's okay for us to say it. Okay. All right. <laughs> and he sailed from Ephesus. Now, if you remember, Paul wanted to preach in Ephesus some two years earlier, but was prevented by the Holy Spirit. I made reference to this, but Acts 16, verse 6. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Paul was determined to go to Asia. In essence, he, was going, he wanted to go to Ephesus. But God prevented him at that point in time. And yet here we see that Paul gets to go to Ephesus now, two years later. It is a wonderful thing to know that God has a special timing for everything in our lives. God has a special timing for everything in our lives. In effect, what the Lord was saying to Paul was, wait, instead of no. And I think that the problem with us many times is that we don't discern between wait and no. Because if we think that God is saying no about something, we may all of a sudden just drop everything and not do anything. But if we do what God says, if He says, wait, I don't want you to go that way right now, then go whatever direction He takes you, because maybe someday He'll bring you back to that. We need to have that discernment of the Spirit to know when God says no, and to know when He says wait. Take, for example, this verse of Scripture in Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. 
Beautiful verse of Scripture. Preceded by that great passage. Uh, in everything there is a season. But here in verse 11 it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. We used to sing this song years and years ago. We used to sing this as a song. And, and, and actually what we did in Jesus was we said that, that God made everything beautiful in His time. And really that's a correct thought. God makes everything beautiful in His time. And as the verse goes on, it's interesting. It says, also He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. That's why we have to pray. That's why we need to seek the face of God. That's why we need to have discernment about waiting on the Lord or, 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 or just leaving something alone so that we can go on and minister where God wants us to minister. Everything God has made beautiful in its time. But it has to be in its time. And I think some of us could, 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 could say right now, I, I got ahead of the Lord a little bit and it wasn't so beautiful. Well, you see, if you get ahead of the Lord, it's not going to be that beautiful. But if you wait on the Lord, it's going to be great. So where does Paul go when he gets to Ephesus? Here's another thing. He went right straight to the synagogue and found Jews willing to listen to his reasoned presentation of the gospel. Is this a contradiction? No, not at all. Because we've always known that he loves his, his people and he wants to tell them about Jesus. He was just upset in Corinth. And he told them, he said, I'm going to the Gentiles. But that didn't keep his heart away from, from his own people. It was Paul just doing what he, know, what he knew that God had prepared him to do. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. To the Jew first. So he goes to the synagogue. And, and then, you know, he, he, he presents to them the gospel and they say, we, we want you to stay. And he says, I can't. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to go to this feast. He's becoming all things to all men, you see. They wanted him to stay, but he didn't consent. However, in his farewell, he promised he would return God willing. If it is God's will, I'll come back. He ends up coming back. Now Paul's intention was to travel to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice along with his hair which was a prescribed ceremony for those completing a Nazarite vow. He became all things to all men. He wasn't compromising his faith in Christ. He was becoming all things to all men so that he became a Jew to win Jews. But this would also place him right in the midst of one of the annual feasts in Jerusalem where many Jews have come from all over the lands. And they would be packed with Jews from all over the Roman Empire. And that's just a delight for an evangelist like Paul. But we're not given much understanding about what happens there. But this, what, this is what we know. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. When he landed... And when he had landed at Caesarea, Caesarea being the Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean, not Caesarea Philippi up in the north, down in the south. Those of you that go to Israel, this is one of the first places we go to is to Caesarea. So you're right there on the, on the shore. 
You see where the boats would have come in, where Paul would have come in. There, Caesarea. He lands there. But notice what it, it says, and gone up and greeted the church. I want to tell you that he's not greeting the church in Caesarea. He's greeting the church in Jerusalem. And I'll explain in just a moment. Because then it says he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So verse 22 says a lot more about Paul's travel log than appears. In other words, we are given certain travel milestones to point us in the direction that the apostle goes. First of all, he landed at Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean. Secondly, we're told that he had gone up. Now this tells us that he did go to Jerusalem because the word up here deals with elevation. And the scripture always says that no matter from which direction you come, north, south, east, west, you always go up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. Thirdly, it says he went down to Antioch in Syria, his home base. Whenever you leave Jerusalem, it doesn't matter which direction you go, north, south, east, or west. When you leave Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem. So these are little clues to us, letting us know that Paul went to Jerusalem. Probably went there to tell the, the church, I accomplished what you sent me out to do. Helping the poor and, and, and meeting certain needs and, and letting them know about the decrees that were made. About being able to be brothers with Gentiles and Jews together. So on and so forth. And to accomplish his vow. And then he went down to Antioch in Syria, his home base. And there he would stay. Possibly for a few months to rest, but much of what we see in Luke's account really does present a, a, for us an atmosphere of haste. Because Paul was not one to waste time. He wasn't known to dilly-dally. His heart was, was drawn like a magnet to ministry, building and strengthening the disciples and the churches in the regions of, of Galatia and Phrygia, checking to see how Priscilla and Aquila are getting along in, in Ephesus. He wanted to see if the synagogue there was still open to him. Because you see, his heart was ever on the mission field. And if you remember when we shared that, that passage where Paul talks about all the things that he had to endure, he said, and, and the greatest burden on his heart was his concern for the churches. He always was concerned for the church. His heart was ever on the mission field. So it gives us now a greater understanding of this passage in 1 Corinthians 9.22 when it says, To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And that's not, you know, his, his thought is not just toward the unbeliever, but as we'll see in the next passage, it's also for the weak believer. And, and we'll see that in the person uh, that we meet there named Apollos. The encouragement for us today is... Never to compromise our faith in Jesus Christ. 
But we can become all things to all men. Now it takes time to understand where people are, where people come from, where people, what, what people know and what they don't know. But if we're among weak, then we become as the weak that we might win them to Christ. We don't look down at them. We don't condescend. We don't, you know, make it seem like we're better or greater. We get down to eye level with people. We become all things. We become what they need in Christ. The mouthpiece that says, your hope is not in this world. Your hope is not in flesh or in men. Your hope is not in intellect and academia. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. That is what we offer to this world. That is, we, that is what we can offer greatly to this society and this culture in our day and time, at this time of the year, to bring people to Christ. And we can do that without compromising our convictions and our stand for Christ. It is a stand. And Paul, Paul was a Jew. And he knew how to become a Jew so, when, so that he could win Jews. He was a Roman citizen. And he would use his Roman citizenship to win the Romans. He was versed in the Greek cultures and philosophies. And he used his understanding to win some to Christ, as he did on Mars Hill in Athens. But he never compromised his convictions for Jesus Christ. Now today we have an opportunity to become all things to all men. And I hope and pray that this has been an encouragement to you. Read, study, pray. And don't be afraid. God has many people. And He may just use you to lead them to Christ. Be willing. Be an open vessel. Be a willing vessel. And be used of the Lord. Shall we pray?